Welcome to summer. Who's doing that? I love you. Oh, who? Mike? Okay, Mike, maybe your mic is still on. Mike, your mic is on. Thanks. Okay. Um, I don't have any announcements. Except, well, yeah, let me uh, make another plug for the baptism. So that's coming up on the 23rd. And uh, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized, um, and you would, well, just come talk to me anyway, whether you want to or not. How about that? All right. I'll be around this week, so just call me and and let me know, okay? You may want to know why, so we'll talk about it. Okay, um, we also want to uh, remember that one of the uh, teachings relative to sanctification is about fellowship. It's not the totality of sanctification, but uh, we do have a reminder each week that we want to get in fellowship with the Lord, so hopefully you didn't wait from last Sunday or Wednesday to do this. but you kind of just keep keep those things in check. But let's uh, have a word of prayer, and I'll give you an opportunity for that before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we can feast around the riches of your word, know the truth, because the truth sets us free. Uh, We thank you as we study the Old Testament, we learn all the basic theological concepts very early, uh, which get expanded upon and developed through the rest of the scriptures. So help us to uh, see the totality of the picture so that we can uh, hear, when we hear ideas or concepts, we can judge them according to the truth as to whether those are in line with the truth or they're out of line with the truth, uh, because we certainly are made for truth as human beings, and it's the thing that... uh, declares to us what the real world is like, who we are in that world, uh, who our creator is, and uh, how we can have a relationship uh, with you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, how we then should live. Uh, So many questions, all the questions really of life, of course, are developed and answered by the scriptures. And so we pray, Lord, that our lives are more and more in harmony with the scriptures. And uh, we thank you that you've uh, seamlessly woven our lives together in history and not only in history, but in eternity, because all believers are going to be together with you forever. And uh, help us to find in you our greatest joy and to be occupied with you throughout our daily lives. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so uh, there was one question that was asked last week that I want to address briefly, and then we'll press on to uh, the background for kingship in the next section that we're going to study in the framework. So... We're in the Old Testament, of course, and one of the issues that we brought up relative to sanctification in the conquest period is uh, the issue of law, because we have the means of sanctification, which are both law and grace, but grace, we said, precedes law, and um, I mentioned, that, of course, that the law that is being referred to in the New Testament that we're under is the law of Christ, not the law of Moses, and the question was uh, asking uh, whether, you know, Paul, for example, was was saying when he said the Christian is not under law, did he mean by law the, the Pharisees, what the Pharisees and Sadducees might have taught, those types of things. In other words, is, it, is he just saying uh, you're not under the law of men, you're under the law of God? Um, well, the, the word law, nomos, is used 257 times 
in the New Testament, and of these usages, um, one usage is just general, you know, for civil law, some civil law that may be uh, under some administration, some governing authority. Another is just a principle that governs your morals, uh, so a law as a principle. And then it is especially used in the New Testament of the law of Moses itself. That's the primary reference to dominant prevailing usage. And it's also used, of course, for the collection of writings known as the Torah. Just the first five books were known as the law. It's also used, though, for the entire Old Testament in some places, the whole Old Testament. And then, of course, it's used for the law of Christ, which I mentioned, such as like Galatians 6.2. It's used of the law of Christ. Um, of all these usages, um, Paul never contrasts um, what we are to follow with, you know, you don't follow the law of, of the Pharisees. Um, he's always referring to the law of Moses and often predicates or states that it is the law of Moses that we're not under. Uh, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7, and of course Galatians, both of these deal primarily with the Christian is no longer under the Mosaic law as a code for life. In fact, the whole law, the Mosaic law, is given as a unit to the nation Israel. It set them apart from all other nations. It was their constitution, and they were to abide by it. It was not for other, uh, other nations. However, Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, tell us that when Gentiles do the things of the law of Moses, they show the law written in their heart, their conscience, conscience bearing witness. In other words, part of the law of Moses is moral. And, uh, but not all of the law of Moses is moral. There's also ceremonial aspects to the law of Moses uh, and things like that. So we're not under, but we're not, what I'm saying is we're not under any of the law, that the law of Moses was a unit and it was set aside or fulfilled by Christ. Okay, but that does not set aside uh, the commandments that were in the law that were by nature moral. What we mean by the moral law of God is that which reflects his essence or character. Uh, so, those things are eternal, they're always in effect, and some of those were taken into the Mosaic Law, um, and of course some of them are part of the New Testament Law of Christ, because they're always in effect. Uh, so, no, we're not under any of the Law of Moses, and Paul wasn't contrasting what we're under with the, the laws of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, what had happened, so we understand what's going on in the New Testament with the Law and the Pharisees, is that the Pharisees didn't follow the Law of Moses, um, they sometimes do. There's a handful of times where they refer to the law of Moses and they are identifying that with their traditions, their specific legal um, liturgy, but that's, they're confused. Okay? That's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 is that they were not following the law of Moses. They were following the traditions of men. So what happened is this historically, and this is how the Pharisees developed all of their highly complex lengthy set of rules and regulations, okay? Uh, and I'll, then I'll give one example. Is that after the Babylonian exile, which is the, toward the end of your Old Testament, uh, when the southern kingdom of Judah goes into exile to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar makes his invasions and takes them into exile. After they returned about 70 years later to the land, there was a set of scribes, and you have the Pharisees developed during the intertestamental time, and the, and the scribes become Pharisees is they start to say, well, let's never let that happen again. <laughs> let's never go into captivity to Babylon again. So in order to do that, we're going to go into the law, the Mosaic law, and the scribes are, and we're going to use um, 
a methodology to develop all these rules that will clarify what the meanings of the law are. So they would take any law, such, and I'll use the example of the law of Sabbath because that's a controversy in the New Testament um, between Jesus and the Pharisees. They took the law of the Sabbath. Now, what's the law of the Sabbath? Well, it's right there in the Ten Commandments. It's not that difficult. On the Sabbath, what are you supposed to do? Rest. Okay, it's not that complicated. Now, the uh, Sopharim, which are the, the, the scribes, okay, the scribes that became set over uh, taking the Mosaic Law and developing all these rules out of the Law of Moses, um, these scribes were known as the Sopharim. Yeah, you can look all these things up, S-O-P-H-E-R-I-M, the Sopharim. And the Sopharim used a methodology called pilpulistic logic. Pilpulistic logic. You know, it sounds like pulp in your orange juice, but it's pilpulistic. And they used this method, they employed this logical um, rules to the law of Moses to develop what it meant, law of Sabbath. Well, they had over a thousand uh, what it meant for the Sabbath. You just told me it means rest, okay? Well, they had over a thousand explanations for what this meant okay and it, obviously it's very convoluted and it's not what God intended okay I mean talk about laborious you've got a thousand things to do on Sabbath I thought this was supposed to be a day of rest you know and I think that's exactly Jesus's point to them many times in the New Testament in these controversies is you made that which God d d made for man a day of rest into a day of labor <laughs> so um that is what Jesus is opposed to in the New Testament and the Gospels. And uh, he's not saying that they did keep the law of Moses. He's saying they didn't keep it at all, that they overturned the whole law of Moses. Okay? And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, he will say something like, You have heard it said, okay, thou shalt not murder. Okay? Well, yeah, they heard that said every Sabbath. right? When it's in the synagogue, they would hear these things taught. They would read from the Torah, thou shalt not uh, murder. And then what does Jesus go on and say? But I say to you, if you hate your brother, you violated the commandment. Why? Because hate is the spirit behind murder, okay? which was the whole intent of the law. The whole intent of the law was to get to the heart of man. And the Pharisee says, well, I didn't pick up a knife and kill anybody this week, so I kept the commandment. That wasn't the point. The point was the spirit behind the act was what was being condemned by the law. Okay? But everybody knows you can't keep the spirit of the law, so what do they do? They just made up all these crazy rules, okay? And that's what Jesus is so opposed to. Um, but, that's all, but the whole point then is that Jesus is defending that he was actually fulfilling Torah, the law. While they were not keeping it at all, they had uh, annulled it, okay? And then Paul comes along, of course, because Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses on the cross. He kept the law perfectly as it was intended. I mean, he's kind of the lawgiver. He knew what it meant. He gave it at Mount Sinai, so he kind of knows what it means. And um, he kept it completely during his life, fulfills it at the cross, and therefore the Christian is no longer, or the Christian is not under it, of course. Um, we have a different law called the law of Christ. So anyway, I hope that kind of answers some of those questions. Uh, today we're going to forge onward, okay? We're going to move forward in the framework, and what we're trying to do, what the framework tries to do is teach you how to think through Scripture, how to think through from beginning to end, the total story of the history of the world, because the Bible is a historical book, okay? It's tracing the plan of God through history, and it's showing how God revealed truth in stages progressively, that he didn't drop down, you know, every truth at creation. He only gave certain truths, and then he builds on that. 
with the fall and evil and suffering, the flood, judgment, salvation, right? Uh, the New World Covenant, he teaches more about God, man, and nature and the governing, uh, his governance of the planet and the universe. The call of Abraham, we have faith. Abraham believes he's justified, doctrine of justification. And then what? Election, he's chosen uh, into this covenant as a nation. And then, of course, you go to the Exodus, and God calls his covenant nation out of Egypt. So we have another doctrine of judgment, salvation. He judges Egypt. He saves um, Israel. But he teaches us, in addition to just the five truths of judgment, salvation, he also teaches us about substitutionary blood atonement. What is redemption? What is reconciliation? What is propitiation? Okay, and then we go out to Mount Sinai, and he gives the law. And so we learn about the doctrine of revelation, how God speaks. We learn about inspiration, how God speaks through man. Okay, and then we learn about canonicity, how he has it written down, so the preservation of truth down through the history, uh, down through time. And then, of course, we went to the conquest and settlement, and here we learned about truths about sanctification. We've studied a lot of those. So... He is revealing truths progressively, piecemeal by piecemeal, as he reveals uh, to man through history, okay? Now, um, we're really, honestly, about halfway through all systematic theology because everything we've done here is the basis, really, for everything else, and there's just a few things added in here and there, okay? So if you really are staying with everything up to the conquest, You've got 50% of systematic theology already under your belt because you, you've got the basics, and the rest will be an outworking and development of that. So what we want to do today is go to a new area that will elaborate on one of these truths we've already learned. And to do that, we need to get into the background for kingship, okay? Because we're going to see that during the judges period, the 400 years where they were, you know, God would raise up judges and so forth, the people are going to get tired of that, and they're going to ask for a king, and God's going to give him Saul, right? And then God rejects Saul, and he chooses David. And David is the guy who sets the pattern for the Messiah. So, to understand Messiah, okay, we have to understand the background for kingship. Uh, and to do that, we want to go back to the early pages of Genesis and so forth to deal with the rise of kings and kingdoms and, and what the people at the time of Saul and David would have been thinking in terms of a king. So turn to Genesis 10, Genesis 10, verse 8. And this is the mention of the first king. One of the things you'll notice right away is, why, why haven't there been any kings up to Genesis 10? I mean, what about all the pre-flood world? Uh, the Adams and the Cains and the Abels and the Methuselahs and all that. Um, why aren't there any kings in those early pages of Genesis? Well, the reason is because what? God didn't give human government before the flood. There was no human government. Well, what was the government before the flood? Well, when we find a, a certain symbol, let's ask it this way. Um, when you see Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden, who is placed at the entrance to the garden, and what do they have in their hand? The angels are placed there, and what do they have? What are they holding? Sword, okay? And the sword, for example, in, in Romans 13 is a symbol for what? Civil authority, for government. It's the right to do what? If I'm a policeman and I'm walking down the street with a gun on my hip, what do I have the right to do? To take life, okay? I mean, I hope that's what it's there for because if it's just there as a, you know, a pretty piece, you know, but somebody starts doing something out in the streets of Fredericksburg 
and killing people and he doesn't take it off his hip and kill that person, then shame on him, right? Because that's what it's there for, is to protect those who are in danger of those who are violating the law. So why do you think those angels had those swords? So if anybody tried to get in that garden, you know, break the law of God and go in there and eat of the tree of life, well, they do what to them? Say, oh, now look, I've got a sword. You better back away. No, kill them, okay? Because they're violating God's standard. So the law or the government before the flood was angelic, okay? They actually lived among men on the planet, okay? And you say, what? Well, they don't have bodies. Okay, I don't know what it was all like, but they could see these angels. They could see these swords, and um, that was the governing authority, okay? Remember that uh, when Cain killed Abel, uh, did God say, okay, now there's a human government that's going to need to take care of this, and, he, and they're going to capitally execute Cain? No, they didn't say that. He said, you're going to be a wanderer on the earth. There was no capital punishment like that, no human government. So it's not till after the flood that you see in Genesis 9-6, the, the sword is placed in the hand of man. And so the sword is the symbol of civil authority or human government, okay? And it's given to man for the first time after the flood. And we refer to this as the fourth divine institution. And you can call the fourth divine institution uh, human government. You can call it civil authority, uh, kingdom authority. But the point is, is that God, for the first time, gave human government. And he gave it to... Uh, not to abuse power, but to limit evil. That's the purpose of human government, is to limit evil and to serve the best interests of the people in a kingdom or nation. So um, here in Genesis 10.8, we have what's called the table of nations or table of kingdoms, and there are 70 mentioned here. After the Tower of Babel, these language groups were divided into kingdoms, 70 of them, and uh, scattered out. So Genesis 10.8, we see the first human king. Okay, not a good one, but nevertheless, first one mentioned by name. It says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom, there's the word, okay? Well, if it's his kingdom, he's the king, right? Uh, that's implied. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar, okay, all in, you know, what we'd say modern-day Iraq. Um, and his, his kingdom was somewhat extensive. It grew. He's a builder of kingdoms, and he starts this uh, rebellion against God, okay? So we see already, I mean, very early in human government that we see that human government, while it was given to curb or limit evil, it can become corrupt, okay? And so we have uh, a corrupt king and therefore a corrupt kingdom, Nimrod, okay, his kingdom. And by the way, all rulers are uh, corrupt to some extent, okay, because they're all products of the fall, so getting new rulers is not the solution to uh, the problem, okay? So, yet we still have human authority, and here was the first king, and we know how it all turned out, he, the Tower of Babel and all that stuff, and so you can see how it, it was turning out. Let's turn to the next king, the second king, and this one's Genesis 14. Second king mentioned in scripture. Now, there's other kings running around. Uh, obviously, there's a whole bunch of kings. But this one is given a lot of, of text. And uh, in Genesis 14, what was happening was Abraham went off and waged battle against a number of kings. And when he's returning, 
um, he runs into one particular king, and uh, we're going to look at him closely because if you just, we're just going to note his functions, the functions of these early kings, kind of how they functioned, because this is going to set the tone for how uh, the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, how he will function. Okay, so Genesis fourteen seventeen. Abraham's coming back. He's just defeated a series of kings. He's uh, taking back some of his relatives and belongings to the king of Sodom. And he's met by this really strange person in verse 18. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. Okay, note two things. Melchizedek is a king. He's king of Salem, uh, which we think is a, like an early form of Jerusalem. And he's also, but he's not just a political, is he? He's also a priest. He has a religious office as well. So he's serving political function. He's also serving religious function. Okay. Now this is a, this is a important because this is the earliest stages of kingship. And there was one man early on who would be both the king and a priest who would hold a religious office and a political office. So you might say early on in kingship that the the church, in, in the king, the church and state were, you know, mixed together, okay? So that's a very interesting feature of the earliest form of government because later the nation Israel is going to have a king, of course, but the king and the priest are separated into two separate offices so that the king and the priest are not the same man, and in fact, they're not even in the same tribe. The kingly tribe is Judah. The priestly tribe is Levi. Right? So not even the same tribe. Okay? But here we see glimpses of these two offices originally being together. Okay? And in some way we'll see that they come back together a little bit in David himself. And they do come back together in Messiah. Okay? But we want to see why God, who originally had priest and king together in one man, later separates them out. Okay? And why it was such an offense for some of the kings of Israel to try to act like priests. Okay, that was, that's gonna, you're going to see that's King Saul's problem. He tries to function as a priest because he can't wait on the priest to show up. He's like, oh my gosh, we've got to get this underway. Where's the priest? I'll just do it. And he goes and makes a sacrifice so then go on into battle, right? And the prophet came along and said, uh, what did you just do? What are you, some kind of an idiot? And uh, now you're going to get creamed, okay? And so what he was doing, of course, what Saul was doing was he's trying to function like this early King, priest, Melchizedek, that's what he's trying to do. But God's saying, no, 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 you don't function that way, okay? So he's, he's what we're going to do is show you Israel's unique kingship model that kept Israel distinct from all the other nations of the world, okay? And we're going to go through First and Second Samuel and see what David does and all that. But all this, this early stuff with Melchizedek, this is a buildup. It's helped us understand Israel's kingship, Saul, David, and finally Messiah, okay? Now, David, he's, he's kind of important. Uh, you probably knew that. Um, everybody knows about David in the Bible. He's as well-known as Noah or Moses, right? David um, is pointing toward someone greater than himself. Uh, and, of course, that someone is Jesus Christ. In other words, he writes, for example, a lot of psalms that are not about David. Although, if you read it, you think you're reading about David. But you're reading about somebody greater than David, okay? That's why if you look at the pattern of David's life, you say, now, wait a minute, that pattern is duplicated in Jesus' life, okay? Same things happen. 
Um, so David is called a Messiah in the Old Testament, a Mashiach. Now, he's not the Messiah, but he is a Messiah, and that's because he looks forward to the Messiah. He's an archetype of the Messiah, an anointed one. So the kingship then, after the flood, as we just seen here, is, a, is building us up for David and finally Messiah. But it's really an adventure to get there, okay? And that's the fun of the Old Testament. There's all the adventures that go on in Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, okay? But it all kind of started back here with Melchizedek. And uh, notice something else about him in verse 18. Not only king and priest, but he, he must understand something about atonement. He must understand something about atonement, blood atonement, because he brings out bread and wine. He brings out bread and wine. You say, well, that sounds like communion. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to be thinking. Okay, You're supposed to be thinking that. He knows something about atonement, and it says he's a worshiper of the Most High God. That's El Elyon. So he was a worshiper of the one true God, Okay, the God of history, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. Okay, so <clears throat> that's what we know from early on in the pages of Genesis about kingship. Now, what, what would we learn next if we were to continue studying the Bible? What would we learn next about kingship? Okay, if you were an Israelite, for example, what would your experience of uh, kings be like? Well, you'd say, well, we were in Egypt, and there was this king called Pharaoh. Okay, who was Pharaoh? <laughs> he was Egypt, friend. He was it, Okay. He was the integrator in their minds of heaven and earth, okay? And it was his job then as Pharaoh to keep stability, to prevent chaos in his kingdom, uh, not let any disruptions take place, which is why the Exodus is such a marvelous thing because it's a total disruption to everything that Pharaoh was supposed to mediate, okay? Here is the political thinking at this time in the Bible, okay? The ancient Near East considered kingship the very basis of civilization. Okay? Only savages could live without a king. Security, peace, and justice could not prevail without a king to champion them. If ever a political institution functioned with the assent of the governed, it was the monarchy which built the pyramids with forced labor and drained the Assyrian peasantry by ceaseless wars. Whatever was significant was embedded in the life of the cosmos, and it was precisely the king's function to maintain the harmony of that integration. In other words, he's responsible for maintaining order in the universe. He is among the gods. He is intermediating between the heavens and, and the gods in the heavens and the earth and what happens here on earth. Okay? Um, so he is viewed really among the gods. Okay? You have, we have to understand this, in the, especially in Exodus with the Pharaoh. And why he keeps saying, no, I'm not going to let you go. Well, I mean, you... He's not going to do what anybody says. He is himself a god. Okay? Now, look at this uh, depiction of Pharaoh that's found in ancient Egyptian artistry. Okay? You have Pharaoh in the middle, Horus on the left, and Khnum on the right, two gods. Now, question. Whoever the Egyptian artist was, which one is tallest here? Just look at it. Which one is the tallest? Pharaoh's actually slightly taller than the other two, okay? He's in the middle. Uh, what does that mean? This is a political statement, okay? Just like in the modern day, you have political propaganda and you have cartoons and all that. This is the same thing, okay? Nothing new under the sun, okay? 4,000 years ago, and this is what they were doing, okay? So this is a political tract, and what it's saying is that Pharaoh is among the gods, 
He is a mediator between men on earth and gods in heaven. He is the integration point of everything in the cosmos. So that's the view that kings uh, or that uh, Israel uh, in the Exodus, the Israelites of the Exodus would have had of kings. Okay, they would have got it from Egypt, obviously. Okay, and uh, Joshua's generation after they had the same view, and the same view would have continued during the judges period. They would have viewed the king as someone who stands between heaven and earth and brings stability. He prevents chaos. Okay, he doesn't permit that stuff to take place. Now, so you can see this, this whole idea of kingship has metaphysical overtones for these people. Okay? Now, here's another one. This is a uh, column in an Egyptian temple. Okay? And on these columns, of course, in plate, you have all these hieroglyphics and so forth. And those are messages, right? The message is the name of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's name. Okay? And his name goes from top to bottom on this column. And on either side, you can't really see it very well. But uh, let's see here. I'm, I'm, going, I'm just drawing a line around on either side. It, looks like, it just looks like a line to you, I know, on either side. But these are, they have a little crook on each end, like a shepherd's crook. Those are welfare scepters. And, of course, above the name of Pharaoh is a depiction of heaven, and below is a depiction of earth in Egyptian hieroglyphics. And... <clears throat> What, what does this say? This is saying that the Pharaoh, okay, whose name is here, is the one who brings, he has the welfare scepters. And what he does is he, he uh, integrates things in heaven with things on earth. He is the mediator between the whole thing. Okay? He is civilization. <laughs> he is the whole thing. And this is why uh, Dr. Henry Frankfurt, who studied uh, Egyptian uh, culture, ancient Egyptian culture for decades and decades, says they could get the pyramids with forced labor. I mean, because they're going to do whatever he says. He could say, army, let's go kill thousands and thousands of people that do whatever he says. Why? Because this king is the source of salvation. He is who brings security to our whole society. It's provided by this king. Now, so you have the Israelites. They lived among this culture. They come out of Egypt. God has led them through the Red Sea. He gives them great victories. He brings them to Mount Sinai and he speaks the ten words, right? The ten commandments. What, what is taking place here? Well, I mean, obviously a ten, uh, he's giving them his law, the ten commandments, but as who? Who is he? He is the king. He is the king, okay? God was the king of the nation Israel, okay? He really did rule from heaven. <laughs> um, he didn't sit among the gods, you know, like is sometimes portrayed here. He didn't sit among the gods. He is the only God, okay? That's what he's demonstrating, right, in the ten plagues. Because the ten, ten plagues, there was a god of the Nile. There was a god of the frogs, Heket. There was a god of the storms. There was a god of cattle. They had all these gods and goddesses, okay? But what is God doing? God is systematically showing that they are not gods, but I am God. And so he, he made this great message by the Exodus, and that's that I'm the one true God. No God besides me, therefore you shall have no other gods besides me. I am your king, okay? So turn to Judges 17. Turn to Judges 17. Just developing a picture of kingship, what the people thought. 
we just studied the conquest and settlement, and uh, what the judges are doing is analyzing, first of all, what happened right at the end of the conquest and settlement. What, what went wrong, you know? Well, they only had partial obedience. They partial trust, partial obedience, and therefore it was only a partial conquest. They didn't, they didn't conquer the whole land, right? Now, uh, since it was only partial, um, were there still enemies in the land? Yeah, there's still pockets of resistance in the promised land. And uh, God pronounced doom. He says, you're never going to get them all out at this time. Okay. That means you're not going to have total victory at this time. You're not going to have total enjoyment of the land at this time, but it's going to have to wait for a later time. In the meantime, it's going to be, these people are going to be like thorns in your side. So the 12 tribes go ahead and um, they settle throughout the land in these tribal allotments. If you have a Bible with maps in it, there'll always be a map that has the borders of the 12 tribes and so forth. They can be misleading because they don't, They don't point out where all the pockets of resistance were, other people, foreigners, and so forth. Um, But these people were there, and they became a snare to them. They led the people to worship other gods. And, of course, that's that's against the very first commandment, right? (laughs) So God would then discipline them for breaking the law and not worshiping him. And then he'd have pity on them, and he'd raise up judges. And the judge would deliver them, whether it's Deborah or Gideon, whoever it is. Okay. Then when the judge died, what would the people do? They'd go back to worshiping these false gods, and they'd become servants again of these other nations. And so God would raise up another judge, and he would deliver them. And so basically it's just this up-down cycle. Okay, we're going to follow the judge, and we're going to worship the Lord. The judge died. Okay, let's go worship idols. Okay, it just goes up and down, up and down, in fellowship, out of fellowship, enjoying blessing, facing cursing, all based on the Mosaic Covenant given at Mount Sinai. And here we are at Judges 17.6, and this is... uh, a refrain on on this analysis I've just given you. And what it's answering is this question. Why did the societies of the 12 tribes collapse during the judges' period? Sure, there were godly people, but the tribes collapsed. They went into chaos, okay? They were taken captivity by their enemies. They lost battles, and they became slaves. And here's the analysis in verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Notice the king. No king. In Israel. So what did every man do? Just whatever he wanted to. Okay. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What, what's another way of describing that? We just got done studying. Let me get this. We just got done studying this during the period of sanctification. And we said uh, the means of salvation is law and grace. But we said you can overemphasize in one way or the other. So if you overemphasize, let's draw a pendulum. This is a pendulum. It's a really good pendulum. <laughs> See? It's swinging that way. Okay. So if you overemphasize law, okay, you get legalism, right? But if it swings the other way and you overemphasize grace, so your pendulum's over here, you get what? Licentiousness. Okay? Now, um, which side in verse 16 is being overemphasized during the judges? Is it law that's being overemphasized when every man does what's right in their own eyes, or is it grace that's being overemphasized? It's grace, okay? These people were in license, okay? 
So turn now to Judges 21, 25, the very last verse, last verse of the book. Judges 21, 25. And this is an analysis. This is the prophet's analysis of 400 years of history. So it's a summary of 400 years. This is what the prophet said. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the summary was that the tribes were in chaos. It was anarchy. Everybody just did whatever they wanted to do. Okay? And we said, look, if you live in a licentious society, okay, where life is chaos all the time, there's no order, there's no stability, after a while you get tired of that, right? And so you swing the other way, right? You swing toward legalism, right? Because you're, just, you're saying, what? I'm tired. I've, I've got to have some rest from, from chaos. And this is exactly what individuals and societies do. They swing like a pendulum between these two extremes, just back and forth, trying every time to find rest. Okay? And so you may see one or both of these tendencies in your own life. Okay? Because if, you, if I introduce a bunch of chaos into your life, pretty soon you're going to be wanting some rules and regulations because you've got to tighten things down or you're going to go nuts. Then that starts crimping your style, and so you say, no, I've got to go the other way. I can't tolerate this chaos anymore. I've got to have some law. Okay? And then you, you just kind of swing back and forth to chaos to order. Chaos to order. Now, that is the story of your flesh. That's the story of my flesh, okay? And that's the story of the nation, unless we learn how to find the balance, of course. And so that's exactly the story of the nation Israel during the judges' period. Oh, we'll do what the judge says and have law and order and follow the Lord and worship it. Oh, judge dead. Let's go do whatever the other nations do, and it turns into chaos. And just back and forth, back and forth. So what happened... 400 years after the entrance into the land, the promised land, the nation had gone at Mount Sinai from position under God as their king. Okay? He's their king, right? And the nation was under God. Okay? Literally one nation under God. Okay? By the end of the period of the judges, it's in chaos. That's what verse 25 is telling us. Society's lawless. Uh, there's no unity now. So the pendulum is going to swing. We've got to have unity. We've got to have order. We've got to have law. So what do you think they want? A king. Okay? They want a monarchy. Okay? One like all the other nations because it's just so wonderful what all the other nations have. A king and all. And they forget that who is their king? God is their king. But we don't want that kind of king anyway. We, want, uh, we have to trust and obey him. You know, We don't want to trust him. We want to just be like all the other nations. We want a great, big, powerful king because we don't like the way God works. And so they're going to get their first king pretty soon, right? And he's going to be a king kind of like what they would want, okay? And uh, we're going to see that that's not a good idea. So now we come to the debate, though. There's a debate here over the rise of the monarchy and whether this is the plan of God or not. Did God want Israel to have a king or did he not want him to have a king? So we want to look at a few passages, and the first one's Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, this is the passage we had read uh, for a scripture reading, okay? Deuteronomy 17. Okay, this is long before the people asked for a king. This is 400 years before. This is by Moses, okay, the time of Moses, okay? And in, in the period of Moses, in the law, there's a provision for a king, Okay, even though they didn't have a human king at the time, of course, God was their king, right? 
There was provision, though, for a human king. And here is, this is a this is classic passage, um, major passage. One of those I'd say, yeah, this is the type of passage you want to memorize. Um, it has political implications. We're not going to go into all the political implications, but I just can't help the fact that they're here. Okay, just like uh, I've gone through in Genesis, all these geological implications, astronomical implications, physical uh, implications, biological, you know, anthropological, all these other things. See, the Bible touches on these things. They touch every area of life, okay? So here it touches on politics, okay? Deuteronomy 17, okay? Verse 14, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and you live in it, says Moses, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Okay? We just read that in Judges, right? 400 years later, that's what they said. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Which is kind of smart. If anybody ever studied history, they'd see that this has happened a number of times, you know. Uh, putting foreigners over themselves, and then it didn't go so well. Because uh, they import all sorts of other thoughts, other ideas about governing. <laughs> so verse 15, then, here is an answer to the appeal of verse 14. In other words, verse 14, what? We want, we want a king like all the other nations. We're tired of chaos, you know. We're tired of society falling apart. We want, we want centralized power. We want strong governing leadership. But God says in verse 15, okay, when you come and say that, just be careful that the one you pick isn't just any old person, okay, but the one I choose. You listen to what I have to say about it, okay? So you'll note in Israel, God was saying, I am going to be the interference in the election process. I, inter- I should interfere. You need to listen to what I say. So verse 15 uh, pronounces doom on pure, the- uh, pure democracy, Okay. The, the democratic theory of government is contrary to the, to the theology of the fall of man, okay? Because the fall of man, or d- democracy, doesn't take into consideration that all men are fallen and will follow the dictates of their sinful flesh such that you just get this oscillation between legalism and licentiousness in your society. That's basically what we function under. A bunch of this oscillating, just swinging back and forth. So we'll get into democracy, the monarchy, aristocracy, different views of government. Government. There are good elements to all these, but they all have limits. Okay? And democracy has limits. So God said, be careful you don't function like a full democracy in verse 15. Verse 14, um, you can ask for a king, but verse 15, I'm going to interfere. I need to be involved. Then he says, verse 16, I will, he puts restrictions on the, the king, okay, on the governing authority. He says, moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, uh, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. In other words, your, your government should not reflect that of Egypt. That's what he's talking about. Okay? That's your experience. Your experience is you came out of Egypt and your people came out of Egypt. But that's not the way that I'm going to set up the kingship. He says, verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And everybody says, uh, well, I know who violated that. Who violated that? I mean, the most overtly. Solomon, right? 
and uh, who had a problem because they multiplied wives and horses and gold and silver. Solomon. Uh, verse 18. Look at this. Now, it shall come about when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom. Verse 18 and 19. This is, just, this is a great political idea. I mean, I, I probably can't preach it legally, but it's a great one. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, okay, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. So he's going to make his own copy by hand. By hand. He's going to write it all out. And everybody, oh, are you kidding me? Really? It's going to take me like weeks. Yeah, write it out. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. So he's going to carry it with him everywhere he goes, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom, in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. I mean, we're not under the law of Moses, but the whole uh, a direct parallel would be to say that the president has to write out the Constitution by hand, including all the articles, and carry it around with him all the time and meditate on it day and night. Now, he's too busy doing golf or getting slammed by people and all the stuff he's got to do. But see, there's a lot he has to do. I got that. But what? Are you doing the most important thing, which would be to read our Constitution and carry it around in your pocket and read it day and night so you know what you're trying to do here and you don't lose focus on this country and what it's about, right? Okay, well, that's what he was saying here to the kings of Israel. Sure, they're going to come into, uh, they're going to be human kings, but, and you're going to have a lot to do because you're the king of Israel. But the most important thing you can do is right there in verses 18 and 19. Okay, copy down the word of God, the scroll, the constitution of the nation Israel and with your own hand and read it all the time. Okay, so Deuteronomy, it tells us that God made a provision for human king. Okay, and then at the end of the judges people, uh, judges time, the people demand for this king. So they're not entirely out to lunch. Okay. It's through this period of the judges when they got so, everything was very licentious, and they got so fed up with it that it came about that they said, okay, we want a king, okay? The problem is they wanted a king like verse 14. They just wanted a king like all the other nations, and God said, be very wary of that because I put limitations on a full democracy. I want your kingship in Israel to be different from the kingships in other nations. You have experienced the Egyptian monarchy, the Pharaoh, a god among the gods. That's not the kind of kingship you're going to have in Israel. You know about Melchizedek, who met Abraham, he would say to them, and he was a king and a priest. Okay? That's not the type of kingship that I'm going to have here during Israel's monarchy. Okay. The king is to be chosen by God. He is to be political or profane sphere only, not religious mixture. And he's to do what? Meditate on the word of God every single day. Every single day. All right. Now, just to get a uh, flavor of the kingship that's going on, or going to occur, I want to read this quote. This is by Frankfurt again. He said the Hebrew king normally functioned in the profane sphere, not the, in the sacred sphere. In other words, he was just a political person. He was not 
you know, functioning over in the religious temple and sacrifice. He wasn't supposed to do that stuff. It says he was the arbiter in disputes and the leader in war. He was emphatically not the leader in the cult, meaning the priests. He was not among the priests. He did not, as a rule, sacrifice. That was the task of the priests. He did not interpret the divine will. That, again, was the task of the priests. Moreover, the divine interventions were sometimes made known in a more dramatic way when the prophets cried, thus saith the Lord. Okay, look, he's just introduced a group of people called the prophets, who you know are major figures in the Old Testament, okay? So you've got the king, you've got the priests, and of course here are the prophets. And he says, these prophets were often in open conflict with the king precisely because the secular character of the king entitled them to censor him. The transcendentalism of Hebrew religion prevented kingship from assuming the profound significance that it possessed in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Uh, by that, he's referring to Pharaoh and Melchizedek in the Mesopotamian period. So the kingship was going to be limited by the prophets. That's why you see the prophets coming into the king and saying, uh, well, your whole nation's falling apart because you're being a spiritual idiot. You know, we need to wipe your spiritual dirty pants and get, get back in the word of God, and get straightened out, and what's wrong with you? And then the kings would always say, it's your fault that, you know, the, they'd go back at the prophet and say, it's your fault this is all happening. No, nah, sorry, no, nah, it's your fault, king. You're the one who's supposed to be reading the word of God. You're supposed to be doing all this stuff. You're not doing it. So the prophets were sent in there, okay? So we're going to hit the prophets really hard in this upcoming period, because this is when you see, like, Samuel, Samuel the prophet, He's not the first prophet, okay? Moses was a prophet too, right? But he is the first in what became known as the school of the prophets, which was a long line of the actual school that oversaw the scriptures, okay, and their transmission. And, you know, they judged true and false prophets and all that kind of stuff, okay? And the prophets, this school of prophets, are going to limit the king's authority. In fact, they're going to be the ones that anoint the kings, right? They're always there anointing the king. God tells the prophet who the king is. The prophet goes and says, okay, God's chosen you to be the king. And then he'll anoint the king. But then, of course, the prophet keeps getting involved, and the king may, may or may not like that. So this is a very unique political structure. Okay? You don't see this in other monarchies. In uh, other monarchies, <laughs> the king is the king. Uh, nobody comes along and says, you're doing wrong, king. I mean, unless you just want to get your head cut off. Or maybe uh, tie some horses, uh, to one to your left arm, one to your right arm, one to your right leg, one to your left leg, and then say, go. Because that's what will happen to you in the ancient world if you try to tell the king what he should do. Okay? So, but that, it was not to be that way in Israel. Okay? There was always the prophet. The prophet can go right up to the king and toe-to-toe with the king. So what is this saying in a nutshell? Well, it's just saying that God was going to create a prophetic office, and through this prophetic office, he would limit political authority. And once the line of the prophets ends, okay, and uh, there's no more prophets, we have what? God's word, okay, and it stands over what? Now I'm making an application. This stands over political authority today. This stands over political authority today. This is higher than the Constitution. Okay, that does not settle well with the world. They do not like it that in their society they, there could be a subset of Christians out there who will not follow the decision of uh, five Supreme Court judges who decide that, well, we're going to legislate today rather than just uh, play the real role of a judiciary. See, And that's why there is conflict in this country. Okay, 
when laws are made uh, from the judiciary that contradict God's word, Christians say, I'm sorry, okay, I respect you and your office, but I can't do that. I just can't do that. And that's why, you know, the early Christians in the second and third centuries under Rome, that's why these, these Christians were thrown to the lions. It's because, it wasn't because they were evil people. It wasn't because they took up arms against Rome and said, we're going to go fight against this emperor. It was more simple than that. The Caesar could not tolerate anyone who was a Roman, in, in the, any citizen of the Roman Empire, saying that he believed or she believed in Caesar Jeshu. That is, a Caesar in heaven who's named Jesus, to whom uh, all things are subject. <laughs> that, that was considered to be the highest form of treason against Rome in, in that day and age. And that's why they threw the Christians to the lions. Okay? They, could not, they couldn't stand allegiance on the part of people to anybody higher than them. Okay? It, it, was, it threatened their authority. Okay? And, and the irony of the whole situation is every Caesar of Rome got their authority from God. But they just didn't want to admit it. See? But it's, it's this mentality that I'm presenting to you today that has enabled Christians to stand up everywhere against totalitarianism. Okay? And this is why the church has never succumbed to totalitarian government anywhere. Okay? It's been submerged for a while. Christianity has been submerged by totalitarian regimes. But it always breaks out. Okay? It always comes back. There's, there's not a ruler in history that has ever broken the back of the church. Ever. They persecuted it. Okay? And thinking that they would crush it. But the persecutions did what? They ultimately just caused the church to grow faster and faster and more and more. Okay? All right. Here is what we have seen in a, on a time scale. Okay, let's put the cross way down here. That's 2000, let's just say that's a 33 AD. 30 or 33 AD. Okay, let's go back in history to 2300 BC, before Christ. The days of Noah, kingship begins. Okay, God puts the sword in the hands of man right after the flood. Okay. I'm not going to draw a sword. I don't want you to be impressed with my artistic skills. Okay, so God gives the sword to man for the first time. Okay, um, we see God call Abraham out. Okay, he meets a priest king, Melchizedek. So in this time, priest and king together. The guy obviously knew something about blood atonement. Very interesting. Then comes Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes. They go down to Egypt and they face the Pharaoh. Pharaoh, in the, their minds, is mediator between heaven and earth. Okay, 400 years, Pharaoh after Pharaoh, mediating, okay, controlling the cosmos. Then they go out to Mount Sinai, okay, because God brings them out. He shows them he's the one true God, and he demonstrates his power and authority, and he becomes their king, and he gives them the law. That generation fails to enter the land, but Joshua leads the conquest. They get into the land, but they don't complete it. There are pockets of resistance in the land. And then the period of the judges, right? So let's just, we got Mount, oh, we didn't do the Exodus. Got the Exodus. They go to Mount Sinai, get the law. Uh, then we go to the conquest period. And this is not to scale. This drawing is not to scale. And uh, then we go to the judges. And really the cross is way down there. So let's just kind of put some lines to demarcate. Lots of time passed in here. Okay. Joshua leads the conquest. They don't complete it, of course. 
during the period of the judges, they're, they're oscillating. Legalism, licentiousness. Worship God, don't worship God. Society goes into chaos. The people get tired. They want order. They want law. They want stability. They want a king like all the other nations because that's the solution to the problem, right? It's always centralized power will solve all our problems. More, we need more government power. We need more government funding. We, gonna, the government's going to solve everything. The government is the source of salvation, okay? Now, the Mosaic Law did provide for a king, right? But just be careful, God said. Whoever you put in that office, make sure you listen to what I say about who the king should be. And further, God's going to do what? He's going to limit the king, but he's going he's, he's to raise up prophets. And these guys are going to be his voice, and these guys are going to go toe-to-toe with the king. So they're going to control the king or, or try to, okay? So next time we're going to see what happens. The people are going to request a king, and uh, really God's going to kind of give them a king like they want, and we will see how that goes. We will see how that goes. All right, but all this is a, it's a primer to see who Jesus Christ is, okay? It's a primer to see what the Messiah King ruler of the world will be, okay? And this is when it all began in history. And it's amazing, you can probably go study all the political science classes you ever want. You never hear anything about any of this stuff. Yet this is the beginning of it all, okay? This is how it all got started. All right, let's uh, close for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, help us have a good view of history, a view of history that uh, partakes of what you have spoken regarding the subject of kingship. Uh, Because apart from that, we can't understand government, we can't understand politics, we can't understand what's going on. Other than just a bunch of chaos, it seems, that goes on all the time. People arguing and fighting over this and that. But do they know where their power comes from? Do they know who the authority is in this universe? Do they know how to function in these offices as servants and ministers? Do they even know what the proper role of government is? That is to serve the people and to provide an atmosphere of peace and security. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom to see these things. You're the the architect of government, but there's a specific form of government that you want to maintain, and we have to go to you. Your word is superior to all governing authorities. And um, we thank you for that because we have been receptive to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we know in whom we believe and that he's able to keep that which has been entrusted to him into that hour. We know what your word uh, says and that if it contradicts anything that we're told we must do by the government, we have to be loyal to you. We have to trust you and uh, live with the consequences, respecting those who are in authority, but never giving up the truth of the word of God. So uh, give us wisdom and uh, give us respect and help us have nobility and courage. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.